Hi, I'm Faye Soteri. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Calibre Podcast, brought to you by Watchers of Switzerland. We've got a really exciting episode today, and we're thrilled to talk about the history of Rolex. Joining our CEO, Brian Duffy, is the Rolex expert, James Dowling. So hello everyone, thanks for joining us again in this uh, series of uh, podcasts from uh, Watchers of Switzerland. Uh, my name is Brian Duffy, I'm the CEO of the Watchers of Switzerland group and uh, really pleased that you could uh, that you would join us today. I'm especially pleased to be joined today by uh, James Dowling. Uh, James is a, a, a journalist in uh, various fields but he's uh, really specialised in the world of, uh, of Swiss watches and in particular uh, uh, Rolex which is the theme of our um, our podcast today. Uh, James uh, was the, the co-author of a, a tremendous book on the history, I think the best that exists in the history of uh, Rolex, entitled The Best of Time, uh, Rolex Wristwatches. And uh, if you're really interested in Rolex, there is no better reference for, it, for you to have than, uh, than this, uh, this book. I'd had the pleasure of, in preparing for our, our chat today, uh, James. First of all, thank you for joining us. Excuse you're me. welcome, Brian. Excuse my manners. Um, but in preparation for uh, for today, I went through the book again, and uh, inevitably you find more kind of anecdotes and interesting uh, facts and stories that are there. Um, I read the whole uh, foreword. I really enjoyed that actually, the foreword by uh, John David Reed, and uh, just to hear directly from somebody that had worked in the company uh, in various capacities. But clearly, it was something that was a uh, very close to his heart, uh, the brand of Rolex, working with Hans Wilsdorf, very, very interesting. Um, and uh, Hans Wilsdorf, I mean, but uh, the history of Rolex is, is the life of Hans Wilsdorf up until his uh, passing in, the, uh, in 1960. So let, let's go back to the beginning. How did it all begin? Well, Hans Wilsdorf, with a name like Hans Eberhard Wilhelm Wilsdorf, obviously was German. He was born in Kulmark, Bavaria, which at that time had just joined Germany. We tend to think of Germany as this country that's been around forever, but in fact, Germany is a very young country, less than 150 years old. It was joined up from various German Teutonic states, and Bavaria was the last place to join. And it's always stood apart from the rest of Germany. It's bigger, it's richer, it's predominantly Roman Catholic, whereas the rest of Germany isn't. It's very Lutheran. And people in the rest of Germany don't think much of Bavarians. But similarly, people in Bavaria don't think much of people from the rest of Germany. And Hans had the problem that his parents were originally from northern Germany, and they were Protestants. And he was probably the only Protestant in his school. He was never really, he never really fitted in. And things got worse for him when both his parents died within a year of each other when he was only 12. Uh, he was then sent off to a boarding school. He stayed there until he was about 16. Then he was sent to another school in Switzerland to learn English and French. And he never went back to Germany. It obviously made a serious impression on him and the impression on, that it left on him was that he didn't like Germany. Right. So uh, uh, his, his life story, and in fact, I think when you see what a, a great uh, uh, individual he became, such a visionary in the world of watches, it's really interesting to reflect what was that very uh, 
very tough experience that he had, you know, losing losing his parents at a very young age, being being moved around. Is that you know where he got some of his drive and ambition from? It could well have been, but I think that he always was a pretty focused and goal-oriented guy. He he also was very. Uh, he, he always had an eye for an opportunity. He worked for a company called Kunan Corton, who import, who bought, were watch wholesalers. They would buy reasonably inexpensive watches from various Swiss manufacturers, case them up, and sell them overseas. As these weren't super expensive watches, they weren't super accurate. Mm. And so you had, in a batch of a dozen, they would be from, some would be a minute a day slow, some would be three minutes a day fast. So there was an air, there was a range of accuracy within those watches. Hans had a thought that if some of them are this slow and some of them are this fast, probably some of them are right in the middle. Right. So what he would do is he would come in early every day, pull out a dozen watches, wind them up, and see how they went and time them against the company's big grandfather clock. And slowly but surely, he put together a dozen really accurate watches. Mm. He then did something where he showed his own initiative. He sent them off for chronometer testing. And the watches, some of them passed. And suddenly, his bosses now had a new product to sell. Mm. They had accurate watches. And Hans learned something from that, that there's always a way around. There's always, you could, something is either a problem or it's a solution. Mm. And Hans always looked at the solutions. One of the things that, he was in his very early 20s, 2021 when this happened, and this winding of the watches every day was a thing that he did for the rest of his life. And I've talked to three people who knew him, and on his first finger and on his thumb were calluses that never went away, that were there from winding watches. Mm. Uh, it just seems so appropriate that yeah. Hans Wilsdorf um, would have calluses on his, uh, on his finger from winding. And it's amazing to hear that he's looking at watches that were, that were gaining or losing minutes per day when the new generation of Rolex movements are plus or minus two seconds uh, today. So accuracy's come a long way. But uh, as you say, he's a very young man when he started uh, work. He was a very young man when he came to, uh, came to England to set up his business. He came first to England to, uh, not just to set up the business, he came to England to work. Mm. And he came to London because at that time, London was the heart of the empire and was the commercial capital of the world. So if he was going to make money, London was the place to mm. be. It, it, as it was then, as it is now. And he first worked, did the same jobs he'd done before. He worked for a, a watch importer. And he did the job that he'd done previously in Switzerland, which was a correspondent. A correspondent is somebody who literally writes letters. He would reply to, he would translate documents and he would reply to, their, to the watch manufacturers and to the customers overseas but all the time he was looking for an opening 
and he saw the opening in the way that many women were now starting to wear watches on their wrist rather than on brooches mm. and he thought that probably there's room for somebody who specializes in that and at that moment nobody did so he got together with his brother-in-law and they formed a company and they very simply they named it after themselves Wilsdorf and Davis mm. and what they did was they imported little movements from Switzerland had them cased up in England put dials on them and flogged them to jewelers mm. because at that time there actually were no watch shops it's difficult for you yeah. to believe but there were no watch shops there were jewelers and that's all there was yes he clearly had that vision that uh, oh. You know, I describe it as, J as Steve Jobs esque of saying this is what people really should have is uh, accurate uh, watches on their wrists rather than uh, uh, big heavy watches in the in their waistcoat, which was uh, uh, which was what everybody was doing at the time. And uh, the quote that he and I'm paraphrasing him here with a quote. He said, "You know, pocket watches will disappear, and you'll see that I'm right." And you know, of course, he was. Eventually, he was, and it was one of the world's great tra he he benefited from one of the world's great tragedies which was the first, first world, world war, war yeah. when officers initially officers found it was easier to have a watch on your wrist than it was to have it in your waistcoat because it would be under three or four layers of mm. outer garments and the first world war was also the first time when it was necessary for armies to move huge amounts of people mm. therefore it was necessary to synchronize actions and for this purpose it was important that everybody had a watch so all the officers almost invariably switched to wearing wristwatches and slowly but surely so did the non-commissioned officers mm. and by the end of the war wearing a wristwatch had become commonplace yeah. and socially acceptable so you know probably not a lot of our listeners know what uh, what, what we're talking about, but effectively Rolex as a company uh, started in London, started in Hatton Garden, um, and eventually was named Rolex in the 1908. Uh, and of course, we know why he came up with the name. Well, he just wanted he wanted a brand name, he, and this was a time when, for the for the first time, advertising agencies were coming up it was now possible to get your name out mm. and Hans's problem was that his watches were being were as I said they were being he was selling movements they were casing them up the jewelers were putting dials on them and selling them and they the, the retailers had their name on them because for most customers it was the retailer who was important not the manufacturer they didn't know who the manufacturer was yeah my, my how times have changed a little bit yes mm. um the, there was no branding so the beginning of the 20th century was the beginning of mass advertising and it was the beginning of brands mm. and the whole idea behind branding was to invent a name that was pronounceable in every language that was short and that crucially didn't actually mean anything so you have names like Kodak, Oxo, mm. Bovril, and Rolex. Mm. They're, they're words that, I've, I've seen the letter that Hans wrote in which he explained how he came up with the word. And it was a word that was short enough to fit on a dial, mm. 
that it meant nothing in any language, but was pronounceable exactly the same in every language. Mm. And it had the feeling of movement, yes. which is what watches are about. Right. Yes, and graphically beautiful, yeah. beautiful letters as, a, as well. And, and he never says exactly why he chose the words uh, Rolex, what the inspiration was, but he did acknowledge where he was when he finally decided on Rolex. Yes, the, the thing is that it's a very philosophical thing to say, but we can only look at what, where we are now through the, through the mirror of where we've been. But the truth is that when he came up with the word Rolex in 1908, it was one of about 12 brands that he sold his watches under. Mm. It wasn't any different from any of the others. He finally decided on it because of what happened during World War One. The there was massive anti-German sentiment, and having a company called Wilsdorf and Davis wasn't seen as good publicity. Mm. So they, he and Davis had to choose one of their brand names to call the company by. And here's the simple thing: Rolex was the shortest one they had. So, I don't know if it's because that was in the days of telegrams, you pay by the letter, but whatever, mm. they chose Rolex. Mm. And they could easily have chosen any one of a dozen other names, but they chose Rolex, and Rolex stuck, and the company became, the company that was Wilsdorf and Davis changed its name to the Rolex Watch Company Limited. And what most people don't realize is that the Rolex Watch Company limited still exists it was founded in London uh, it was created in 1915 and it still exists headquartered in St James's Square all right and that's the same company registration number well somewhere I visit often yes yes <laughs> but uh, that's, that's so interesting and, and in the history of Rolex on, on, on their website, they, uh, they have the photograph of where they, he acknowledged Jesus that he was yeah. when he finally <coughs> decided was in an omnibus in Cheapside. Although he never um, formally acknowledged the inspiration of, uh, uh, of where the, the word Rolex came from, we do know how he paid for his bus fare. <laughs> he used an Oyster card. This is my one contribution to the... Uh, historical facts on the Rolex. He used an Oyster card and uh, transport for London were so impressed, they said, you can keep it forever. He said, you mean it's a perpetual Oyster? Brian, please, for God's sake, do not <laughs> give up your day job. <laughs> My one contribution, and that's the typical reaction I get for it uh, overall. Um, but he then sets about saying, I'm going to make wristwatches what everybody wants in the future. So the, the first thing that he had to do is uh, get an accurate wristwatch. Fundamental to uh, timekeeping, of course, is a uh, his accuracy, so he went about making a, a finding a movement that would uh, that would be accurate. He, by, by this time, he had established a relationship with the Aigler family mm. of Bn, who were the first company in Switzerland to manufacture to specifically focus on small size watch movements. Mm. And he challenged them to make a wristwatch size movement that would pass the Swiss chronometer tests. And the Aiglers obviously enjoyed a challenge and they, mm. they took the challenge up. I'm sure that Hans paid for it. 
it would have cost quite a lot of money because it would take a lot of a lot of adjusting to get one of those they're pretty basic movements to get one of those accurate enough to pass the chronometer test will have taken a lot of time and a lot of money by their most skilled watchmakers but they did it and Rolex and Aigler were the first people ever to get a wristwatch first through the Swiss chronometer tests and then a couple of years later through the much more extreme Q marine chronometer test mm. which is 45 days and is a is a phenomenal test that most watches nowadays still couldn't pass oh really well wow. uh, and a, a class a certificate from yes Q. Yep. which was uh which was phenomenal and so he was able to because one of the, the basic reasons that people didn't like wristwatches is because they're small the balances are small they don't have the accuracy of a big pocket watch with a big balance. So people kind of, oh no, they're all right, they're, they're, they're fine, but they're not real timekeepers. Mm. He went out of his way to prove that they were real timekeepers. His job, as I see it, was overcoming all the questions and all the problems that people had with wristwatches. And he did that, it took him 20 years, but he went through it and he, he then, he had two great challenges. One was that a watch on the wrist is susceptible to moisture, but crucially to dust. Mm. Dust is much more of a problem with a wristwatch in those days because everybody thought you don't take a watch near water, you, you you wouldn't. But dust entering through the winding crown or through the seams on the, where the case closed would gum up the oil and cause it to become inaccurate. Mm. And wristwatches needed to be serviced much more frequently than pocket watches because they were much more exposed. And so the development of the oyster. Is, yes, it's waterproof, but the key about being waterproof was that saying it's waterproof shows that it's even more than dustproof. And his big challenge was keeping the dust out, mm. and he did that with the oyster. Yes. And to show that it was waterproof, he gave one to a similarly German-named English lady called Mercedes Gleitzer, who wore it whilst attempting to swim the channel. Uh, in 1927, 28, mm. and uh, he proved it. Yes, and and then had it on the the front page of most of the big newspapers in the in England. I think it was just the Daily Mail. It, it was that was a time. It's difficult to think of it nowadays when almost no newspapers in Britain had news on the front page. They had advertising on the front page. Uh, the Times had advertising on the front page until the 70s. Mm. Uh, but at that, Wilsdorf went out and did something that nobody had done for a watch brand. He bought the entire front page. And the center of it was talking about the oyster. But the rest of it, if you look at that big ad, most of it's talking about, still talking about women's watches. Because even in the mid-20s, women's watches represented more than half of what Rolex made. Men were still wedded to the pocket watch. And it really wasn't until the 30s 
when the styles of clothing changed that men really switched over to wristwatches. And, you know, uh, today Rolex is 70, 30 men's, women's, and mm-hmm. uh, very, very much what uh, I think every man wants, but equally, you know, a great business with women. But uh, the, the t- so the time we're talking about the things that have happened, also in 1919, he left London and set up the business uh, finally in Switzerland. And again, war uh, related because of the imposition of uh, import duties that had happened. Uh, 1919, also for our company, we became the first ever uh, authorised retailer of Rolex in uh, Newcastle, of all places, and uh, Northern Goldsmiths. So we'll actually be celebrating a centenary uh, next year of, of having been the, the first retailer of, uh, of Rolex. And I think I found interesting in your book too that um, his business was not by any means global at that point. It was predominantly the UK uh, and the British Empire. Actually. Yes, it, it, it was really much. But you have to understand, at that time, the empire was pretty much the globe. Mm. Um, you know, it, if you were... South America was immaterial. North America was still uh, recovering from the Civil War at the turn of the century. Mm. It wasn't really until the end of the First World War that America became a world power. So being centred in London and selling to the empire was where it was at. And he kept the UK operation going, but moved the corporate headquarters to Switzerland so that he could keep a better eye on it. He'd had a Swiss office since about 1908, I think, in uh, La Chaux-de-Fonds. He closed that and moved the whole operation to Geneva, where they have been ever since. And uh, Rolex are a huge, uh, I think they're the biggest taxpayer in the whole canton of Switzerland. Oh, uh, well. I mean, their presence in, uh, in Geneva physically and in every other sense is, uh, is, is very, very obvious. The, the offices, the manufacturing that's there, it's, um, you, you don't need to wonder whether this is a, a big, dominant, successful company if you just look at uh, their physical presence and what Rolex means to Geneva and Switzerland. It's, uh, it's very obvious. Um, so, I mean, some other, uh, just on, on our dates, another thing, 1925 is when the, uh, the famous crown was, uh, was adopted as a symbol as well. The, uh, the coronet. Yep. It's not a crown, it's ah, a coronet. Yep. <laughs> Rolex are very insistent on this. A crown belongs to a king, I think a coronet belongs to a baronet. All oh, right. Yeah. Um, but this was, if you look at that time of the 20s, Although by this time Rolex were firmly ensconced in Switzerland, they were still very British-oriented. So the coronet, which is a, a, a baron's he- headgear, ceremonial headgear, was just one of the things. They, they launched a watch called the Prince, which was their flagship watch at that time. They also launched the Princess watch. They had lots of very British, very royal connections. And it was at that time, in fact, that they registered the name Tudor, although they didn't actually launch the brand until several years later. But they were very, very British-oriented. Uh, they still were, and they remained so, really, until Mr. Wilson's death. Oh, yes. Uh, very interesting. And, of course, his wife was, uh, was British. Mm-hmm. Um, and As was he. 
He became British in when they married. Oh, right. So he was yeah. a British citizen. He was a British yeah. citizen. Yeah. He, uh, it was one of the things when they changed the name of the company from Wilsdorf and Davis to Rolex that uh, I saw in the documents. It, it listed him as Hans Wilsdorf, British citizen by marriage. All oh, right. <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, his, his up, upbringing in, in Bavaria almost made him uh, dislike uh, uh, the Germans, then his British nationality, and we know in the Second World War he was very much about helping the uh, the Allied troops and, yeah. and even helping them <coughs> specifically by his watches there, um, uh, the officers and so on. So I think his allegiance was pretty clear. Undoubtedly. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've rolled forward. He's made uh, an accurate watch and had that certified uh, ultimately at the, the Kew Observatory. Uh, he then made his, his oyster uh, watch uh, waterproof, but as you rightly say, it was more about humidity and dust were the, were the big concerns. And again, I found it interesting in your book talking about the empire, uh, that in the more far-flung parts of the empire, humidity, first of all, wearing wristwatches was much more obvious because people weren't wearing a great deal of yeah. clothes and didn't have, uh, didn't have waistcoats. But secondly, they were in more likely in exotic climates with, uh, with humidity problems, so the demand for waterproof or, or element proof was a uh, was even greater very much so and it was it was the areas of the empire that adopted the wristwatch as a general piece of use probably before it became common in the UK and you also had the situation in in the, the outposts of the empire where the guys who were the guys who were British who were stationed in India or parts of Africa or out in Malaya, they were rich. They, they were very well mm. paid. And so they could afford stuff like wristwatches. They could afford the luxuries of life. Whereas in Britain, we were desperately trying to recover from the effects of World War One, which had depleted the national treasury immensely, and which is why we had to int introduce such high taxes, which forced Rolex out of the UK. Mm. Yeah, all, all connected yeah. with economics and, uh, and uh, world development. So he um, he'd made an accurate watch. He then made it uh, uh, proof to all of the, the elements that were there. And the last thing they had to do is make it uh, convenient in the sense of not needing a daily winding. Well, the problem he found was that the oyster was a great idea, and it, it, it did what it said on the can. It stopped, it kept the watch dry. The problem was that you had to wind it every day. And because the whole idea of a screw-down crown was new, and people had never really encountered them before, people would wind the watch and they'd forget to screw the bloody crown back down. Mm. And so you lose all the benefits of having a waterproof watch. Mm. And so he was finding that people were bringing the watches back with still exactly the same problems that they had before they had the screw-down crown. And so his idea was, well, if we can make the watch automatic, then you don't need... If the watch is A, accurate, you don't need to change the time. If the watch winds itself, then you don't need to wind it up. So you have no need to open the crown and thereby let moisture, dust, and all the other crap into your watch. Mm. So he approached the Aigler family again and 
Mr. Aigler's daughter had married a young man called Emil Borer, who was the who was the Jared Kushner of the <laughs> of the Aigler family, in that he he married the boss's daughter, but came into a, a serious position of his own. And in fact, he was the technical director of the firm, and he took the basic Aigler manual wind hunter movement and mounted a frame around it and then put a rotor on that and put intermediate gears in between them so that as the rotor moved when your wrist moved it turned the gears and wound the watch what was great about this was that there had been other automatics prior to this it had been a major developments during the 1920s, late 20s, lots of people had come up with various ways of utilizing the movement of your wrist to wind the watch. But they were all clean sheet of paper designs. And there were some bizarre ones. Those ones where if you flexed your wrist, the lug moved and that wound the watch. There were some where the whole movement slid up and down inside the case. There were ones where as you flexed your wrist, the back of the case moved up and down to wind it all sorts of things but they were all strange unusual movements Aigler's breakthrough was taking a absolutely stand box standard movement that any watchmaker recognized instantly and putting a module on top of it and when you open the back of these early automatics you'll see writing all over it in two languages explaining to the watchmaker exactly what to do with this watch and it 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 did the job it was simple it worked and Rolex did something really interesting they when they fitted this new movement to their watches they took the, the basic design and just put a thicker back on to, to cover the rotor but the one thing they did to make the watch different was that they put a tiny winding crown on it and this was to signify not only to the owner but to anybody who saw it that this was a watch that didn't need winding very often uh, these early bubble backs are recognizable by the really deep back to cover the rotor and by the tiny winding crown it's James amazing to hear all the, these anecdotes and details about uh, the history of, of something that really uh, clearly affected the, uh, the entire Swiss watch uh, industry and, and he managed to patent that rotor it was a, a bi-directional 360 yes. degree rotor yeah. and he managed to patent how long did that patent last uh, Swiss patents I think are 25 years but in truth yes I think they are but I oh. don't know how long they were then they may have been longer or shorter I don't know oh. um, but it certainly lasted for a long time and it and it effectively stopped other manufacturers from copying his ideas. Mm. And you'll look at uh, watches from Omega, perhaps, or other manufacturers of that period, Jaeger, all have to use what we call um, bumper automatics, where the, the rotor doesn't go through 360 degrees. It only goes through maybe 270 mm. and then thumps to a stop and then goes back again and thumps to another stop. Yep. So a huge advantage there for, yeah. for Rolex uh, during that time. Although economically, we're talking about a tough period for the world, oh, for sure. Extreme pressure. Yep.
and uh, and uh, not surprisingly, therefore, other than uh, uh, the automatic, the rotor in 1931, there's not a, an awful lot happens in product development in the, in the 30s. And the next big thing from Rolex is 1945 with the uh, with the Datejust. Yes, what what isn't so well known is that 1945 wasn't the first time that Rolex had ever made a watch with a date. It was the first time they'd ever made a watch with the date in a window. Uh, as early as 1915, Rolex had watches with the calendar on a, an external ring around yeah. the uh, hour numbers and a pointer hand to indicate the date, which is what everybody else did. Yep. Uh, so in the early days, Rolex weren't different. The key thing that Rolex, that Wilsdorf learned was to make his stuff unique. So the Oyster was unique, the perpetual winding system was unique, and again, putting the date in a window was something that nobody had done before. Mm. And every time he tries something, he does something that n nobody has done before. And one thing he'd learned was that during World War II, as, as during the First World War, in, in times of conflict, utility matters much more than style uh, and during the war the size of watches that men wore increased considerably before the war you're looking at 32 millimeter watches mm. by the time the war ended they were 35 36 37 millimeters just for legibility just for legibility mm. because it's a quick look yeah you don't have time uh, so he then, in the, during the war, he developed his bubble back style into a larger 36 millimeter style with a sweep seconds. And the watch that he developed in 45, the very first date just, uh, was simply that watch with the addition of a date disc and a hole in the dial. Mm. But what isn't so well recognized is that the very first date justs didn't have the name date just on the dial. The name date just actually, although it was invented at that time, although it had been registered, it wasn't actually on the, on the dial of those first watches. It wasn't until the second model came along about a year or so later that yeah, they right. actually put that name on the dial. I always uh, joke, I mean, whatever Rolex does with their own vocabulary just becomes uh, cool because it's Rolex, but I often say date just to me sounds like an apology. <laughs> you know that there's there's nothing else going on. There's uh, uh, just a date, but it's you know one of the most recognised terms, of course, with uh, with Rolex today. And um, interesting, we see and again you see them in your book when you see the the originals and, and with the little aperture, but there's no cyclops eye, mm. of course, and it, it, you really see there's something missing here fundamentally. It's funny because the 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 Cyclops really didn't uh, didn't come along until the early fifties when Rolex developed the ladies' date just, and the ladies' date just would have been impossible without the Cyclops because mm. 
the the size of the date on a lady date just is a couple of millimeters mm. and it's it is unreadable without a cyclops yep. and so it first appeared on the lady date just and then was launched on the several of the gentlemen's watches all at once the gmt and the uh the day just and now you're very much a recognized part of of, of what a rolex is to everybody um so you know rolling forward 1953 and uh, rolex's association with adventure and accomplishment if you like uh, you know it becomes part very much part of what they do and in '53, we had uh, we had Queen Elizabeth uh, the second coming coming to the throne, and we had em- Everest being conquered. Yeah, it, it the story of the Royal Geographic Society, the British Army, and the Everest expedition is is a really interesting one, and I recommend John Hunt's book on the conquest of Everest to anybody. It, it was it was one of the classic British. Um, muddling through we're going to do this don't worry um my dad's got a barn let's put on the show right here <laughs> sort of things it really was it, and and involvement in it was kind of like that it, it was only at the very almost before they were due to set off that Rolex realized that hey maybe we can do something with this mm. and so they contacted the royal geographic society and sent a bunch of their perpetuals with them. And each of the Commonwealth or British Army climbers was given one. The most interesting thing is that the two guys who reached the top, Hillary and Tenzing, both wore Rolexes. But Tenzing wasn't either British or a member of the army. So where did his come from? And in fact, he'd had his before the British got theirs. The year before, the the Indian government, or the Tibetan government, I'm not sure who actually controlled Everest at that time, only allowed one national expedition a year to climb Everest. How unlike today. Um, And the year previous, the expedition that had attempted Everest was a Swiss national expedition. And they were officially sponsored by Rolex. And every member of that team was given a Rolex Oyster Perpetual to wear. Mm. They attempted, they made several attempts on the summit and their best climber and, their, and the best of the Sherpas made the final attempt. And they, they got within a couple of hundred meters of the summit, but the conditions were too severe and they turned back. And the Sherpa who helped the gentleman was, he, the Swiss gentleman thought he was responsible for saving his life. And so he handed him his Rolex. Wow. And that was Sherpa Tenzing. And Tenzing was chosen attempt the climb with Hillary because he was the most experienced of the Sherpas. That's, that's amazing to hear it from two entirely different sources and routes. Yeah. I've seen uh, Tenzing's watch. It's in the Rolex collection in Geneva and mm-hmm. I've handled it. It's a small bubble back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also handled Hillary's watch, which isn't, by the way, an Explorer because the Explorer was actually 
not developed until just slightly yeah, after yeah. that. But it it is the same size as the first perpetual as the first explorers. It's a perpetual and it has a three six nine dial. But it has a white dial, not a black one. All right. The, the details are amazing to hear, Jane. Really. It's in the Bayer Museum in Zurich. If you want to go see it, okay, I'll uh, I'll, I'll get that on my uh, on my bucket list for sure. And a year later, uh, as you as you said, is when the Explorer came along the Basel Fair in 1954. Big year, 1954. Big year for my mum specifically because I came along in 1954. But in, a, in addition to me, there was the uh, the Submariner, the Explorer, and the Cyclops. I all, all came along. At, uh, at the Basel Fair, so a huge, huge year for Rolex. Fifties was really the sort of the birth of all the icons, all of the watches that we think of now as key to Rolex. Other than the date, just all happened in the fifties, mm. and the birth of the Submariner was key for Rolex. It 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 introduced a new area for them. What Rolex called prof the professional watches what we tend to call the sport watches. But what isn't so well recognized is that the, the, the Submariner didn't happen out of nowhere. The Submariner actually grew from another watch called the Turnograph, which had been launched the year previous. And that was the first Rolex with a rotating bezel, which allowed you to measure elapsed time. And the Turnograph was launched in 53 as an alternative to a chronograph. The idea was that it would monitor, it, you could, the brochure that came with it said you can time the exposure of a photograph, the time of an international telephone call using the bezel. Mm. You don't ha need the complexity of a chronograph to do these simple things. The truth was it wasn't very successful. And Rolex simply changed the design of the bezel, put a different, put a, a, a larger crown on the watch, changed the model number. The turnograph was a 6202. The model number of the first Samara is 6204, so you can see how closely related they were. They're identical yep. in size. And uh, they launched it to take advantage of the recent rise in the popularity of skin diving, which had really taken off with the adventures of people like Cousteau and television programs like Sea Hunt. Skin diving had become a thing, and now here was a watch for it. And Rolex and Blancpain got into it in a big way. Mm. And happily they did, because as you say, it's one of the biggest selling uh, parts of Rolex today, probably one of the most recognisable uh, watches around today. Um, so, and you're sporting one that does not look that good on everybody, but it looks, look, looks, looks, uh, looks very good on you, James. Um, and then the next year, uh, Rolex is clearly on a roll, so the next year we had the day date uh, uh, coming, the first one that ever actually had the day and the date, uh, Aperture um, famously given to Dwight Eisenhower. I don't know if it was the first, but it was one of the early editions. No, the, Eisenhower was given a, a date just, along with all of the guys who had been prominent in World War II. Right. So they were... Uh, 
Churchill, Eisenhower, de Gaulle, and probably one of the Russians too, were all given uh, date just with significant uh, serial numbers. So I think Churchill got the uh, one million watch or something. I, I'm not sure. There were significant numbers. That's right. all I can say. Um, the role, the the, the day date became known as the president after Johnson was LBJ was right. seen wearing it. It was his watch. Um, you have to remember that Johnson was the originally the senator from Texas, one of the senators from Texas, and the day date has always been known in America as the Texas Timex. All right. It's the uh, it was always the oil man's. Yep. favorite watch um, at that point it was considered to be a sort of hey look at me flashy show off watch but over the years it has it's gone in two directions it, it became in the 70s and 80s with the advent of uh, the stellar colored dials and the uh, jeweled bezels to be a very very flashy watch and at the same time the launch of the watch in white gold and particularly on an oyster bracelet or on a leather strap uh, it became a very discreet way of expressing one's preferences so the great advantage of the date just is it is the day date is like the date just it can be whatever you want it to be mm. it isn't just a single thing it is a range in itself and do you know when they did when they launched it did they always have it in french and english or was that it uh, initially it, to my knowledge it was launched in five languages right. it's now in 26 languages really and um, a friend of mine wears one with it bizarrely in Latin. Wow. <laughs> Why not? I guess. Exactly. And I get uh, the same size aperture, or I guess it's it, nope, same, same size aperture. Same size. Oh, There's even Ethiopian. Of course there is. Of course. <laughs> um, but uh, a really, again, iconic. My mistake, I thought uh, Eisenhower's was a, was a day date, but uh, mm. something else I've, uh, I've learned. From. And the JFK one, the one that was famously engraved in the back. To uh, to Jack Love Marilyn, was that a day date or a or a date just? I, I, I thought it was a day date. It, it may well have yep. been, but uh, Kennedy wore a variety of watches, whereas LBJ only ever wore his right. president. Yep, and uh, JFK was more often seen in a suit and a tie with his sleeves down. LBJ was seen with his sleeves rolled up being the action man yep. and so his watch was much more visible yep. than other people's had been prior to that so we're all through the 50s we get to 1960s sadly it's the date of the of, of the passing of Hans Wilsdorf uh, he uh, then sets up I know the foundation had been set up years earlier but he then gives all of his shares to the to the foundation and from that point onwards uh, Rolex effectively have been a foundation, a, a charity, and, and never had commercial uh, uh, interest in the shareholding. I, it's very. What you have to understand, and this is crucial, is that you know people say, "Oh, well, Rolex is a non-profit company." No, it's not. Rolex, for God's sake, you buy watches from Rolex. You know they are very profit-oriented. Of course, they're hugely profit-oriented. What is different 
is that where the profits go. The profits go to extending the factory, building, uh, improving uh, machines and what have you, salaries and everything. But crucially, whatever's left over goes to the foundation. And the foundation has several tasks. It still takes care of some members of the Wilsdorf family. It supports watchmaking charities. Um, and if you've been to Relic's headquarters recently, when you come from the center of Geneva, you'll drive over uh, a small river and there's a, a bridge that looks like a bird's nest. Mm. And that's the Hans Wilsdorf Bridge that was built that was built and paid for by the foundation. They built the uh, libraries at Lausanne University. They, their money goes into education and charitable works and benefiting the city of Geneva. And the, the foundation is controlled by five trustees, I think one of whom is always a member of a distant relative of the Wilsdorf family. So the, the foundation itself is a charity, but Rolex SA, the company, is very much a profit-oriented operation. Yes, it's, our, uh, it's my uh, biggest relationship, it's our biggest business, and um, very, very professional organisation, but of course they're, they're very commercial in their thinking, but I think the foundation ownership certainly gives them um, a, a stability uh, of it, it changes the dynamic of the company in a way that no other brand has. They can think five, 10, 20 years ahead. Mm. They, they don't have to worry about quarterly results. It, it's what allowed them to survive the quartz crisis yep. that almost demolished the rest of the Swiss watch industry. Yep. They didn't have to worry about shareholders. They didn't have to worry that, um, that they were going to lose money. Mm. They could afford to lose money. They had, they had resources in depth which allowed them to survive it and to, and, to, uh, and to keep all their people working, which is something that no other Swiss manufacturer was able to do during that period. Yeah. But uh, the, the sense of of doing the right thing, doing good things, a sense of philanthropy and so on, and as you say, the long-term vision and the behaviour of Rolex is very, very obvious when they, when, when you get to know them, as, as we've both been able to do. And uh, and a lot of it's, uh, it clearly comes from uh, Hans Wilsdorf, you know, giving his entire ownership over, over to the foundation at that point. And so there are two things that people tend not to know about Rolex. It was started in London and uh, today it's a charitable foundation ultimately that, uh, that owns it but in between all that there's one of the world's most amazing uh, most amazing brands so also in the 1960 the, then Rolex some uh, seven years previously having been to the top of the world a Rolex was taken to the bottom of the world the the beast as we tend to call the original um deep sea Rolex. They were hewn from a single piece of stainless steel and they were about they were the size of a decent orange. <laughs> uh, the, the problem with 
taking a watch to any depth isn't the case. It's the glass. Steel is a pretty strong material. It'll stand up to pretty much anything. Glass or plastic or sapphire are inherently much more fragile. Mm. So the big question with making a watch that would go down to these depths was what do you do with the glass? And what Rolex came up with in the end was a hemispherical glass so that the pressure was equal on every surface of it. And they designed it with gaskets so that the more pressure was put on it, the more the glass was forced into the gaskets. It was fortunately never designed to be worn because essentially even in the days, even now, when we think of Panerais as normal watches, this thing is ridiculous. Mm. Um, but it survived its task. It was bolted to the outside of the Trieste and it was sent down to the bottom of the ocean and it came back up working perfectly. Yep, and almost uh, almost 40,000 feet, 11,000 meters. So. Yeah. Uh, and again, with a wonderful marketing response, Rolex was then able to see from the, the, the deepest part of the ocean to the, the highest mountain. You know, the Rolex had kept kept functioning. So uh, tremendous advertising. And advertising is something we haven't really talked about, and it, it, it's something that is really interesting to me. Is that Rolex? The relationship between Rolex and their advertising agency, which is J. Walter Thompson, is one of the longest relationships that's known of between a manufacturer and an agency. They've been with them since 1945, oh. which is it's almost 75 years. Mm. That's unheard of. And they've worked very closely with them. And like their investment strategy, their advertising strategy is very long term. Um, and it's like their manufacturing strategy. The Rolex aren't like most of the other manufacturers. And again, it's to do with this long term thing. Mm. They don't bring out a new, they don't, there isn't a 2016 version of a date just and a 2017 version of a date just. No, they're very, very thoughtful. Yeah. About, yes new developments. And that's what's really behind the long-term resale prices of used Rolexes, in that you can buy a 10-year-old day-date, put it on your wrist, and if it's been cleaned and polished up, nobody will know that it's not a brand new one. Yeah. And so people are prepared to pay more for something that looks like the current model than they are for something that looks like the 1994 version. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Submariner we were talking about, and we're talking about the 1950s, and you would very, very happily wear exactly that model today. It still looks super cool, immediately recognisable. The one I'm wearing is yep. uh, 1971. Yes. The original was a little smaller, was it? or? The, the original was smaller. Yep. Um, the current watch uh, is a little bigger than the one I'm wearing now. Yep. Uh, but that's one of the things about Rolex is that they 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 cover all the bases. You can now buy the Rolex Oyster, the the basic non-date model, in five different sizes. Yeah. And I think that, uh, in my opinion, the current absolute basic 
Rolex Oyster Perpetual with uh, either a black or a white dial on an oyster bracelet in steel is a genuine bargain and is a watch that you could wear anywhere, anytime, and will probably outlive you and will... I mean, I would never, ever advise anybody to buy a watch as an investment. You buy a watch because you love it, right. and if it does make money, then be very grateful. But one of those watches worn for five or ten years will never lose your money, yep. ever. And I think, as you rightly say, another great thing about Rolex is they, they like to preserve their positioning in the market it has a reasonably broad appeal you know yeah. four thousand pounds five thousand pounds is a lot of money yeah uh, but if, if you are buying a swiss watch of that nature then, then buying a rolex from that price point is a you know a very very smart thing to uh, to consider um so 1960 the other change of course with hans bilsdorf uh, passing as we have the first um uh, ceo if you like that wasn't the owner of the company and that was a uh, andre heiniger um, the couple of quotes that, um, that are ascribed to him that I've read, uh, which, which I think again describes a lot of what Rolex is about. He said Rolex is evolution, not revolution. Mm -hmm. And your, your points of how recognisable uh, everything the watches have been through the ages really demonstrates that. He also uh, was, and again I'm slightly paraphrasing, I know, but he said, we're not in the watch business, we're in the luxury business. And I thought that was a very smart realization back in the 60s. He was asked by a journalist from the Swiss business magazine, Bilan, during a casual encounter, how are things in the watch business? And that was his response. Right. And the, there's always been this acknowledgement at the, at the highest levels of Rolex that if somebody's, that, that Rolex isn't a life and death purchase, it's not something you have to buy. Right. It's something you choose to buy. And that somebody choosing to buy a day date in white gold with diamonds on it is looking at 30 odd thousand pounds. And so they, they're not thinking, am I going to buy that or am I going to buy a Panerai in red gold with diamonds? They're probably thinking, am I going to buy the day date, or am I going to trade in my Porsche and buy a new one, <laughs> or am I going to spend the money on my wife and I going to Bali for three weeks? In other words, the the, the options that they're up against are not other options in the watch business; they're options in the lifestyle. Yep. And so that's a lot of what Rolex, how they position themselves. Yes. And I think that, that absolutely, and, and that clarity that uh, uh, Andre Heiniger had back then, you know, I think has had a big influence on in, in Rolex thing, exactly as you as you're saying. So then, in, in the early '60s, probably the most iconic Rolex of all uh, is created the, the Daytona Cosmograph, 1963. Uh, you probably argue whether or not it is the most iconic, but it's certainly it's certainly today the holy grail of uh, of Rolex. Well, it's, it's the holy grail of collectors' Rolexes, and it, here's, the, here's the dirty truth about the Daytona. There's three versions of the Daytona. There's the, the one we're talking about, the, the first one, which was what I call the Valjou Daytona, which right. used a Valjou movement. Then they came along with, their in, with the 
Zenith movement, a modified Zenith movement, and then there's the current in-house yeah. BN movement. Before one but, the after. Yeah. but let's talk about the super desirable Daytona. It was a failure. It was a complete and absolute commercial failure. It was the worst watch that Rolex ever made. It was the least Rolex watch that Rolex ever made. And I'll tell you a story about watches of Switzerland. Tell me. Hope it's a good story. When I was, when I was young and even more stupid than I am now, I decided that I had got to that point in life where I was going to buy my first Rolex. Right. So I went into watches of Switzerland on Bond Street. And like most people who buy a Rolex, I didn't go in there and dither around and say, oh, uh, can I look at watches at around 1,200 quid, please? I went in and said, I want a Rolex GMT Master mm. on an Oyster bracelet. So the guy shows me a couple. This was in the days when you guys had watches in stock. <laughs> and he, uh, he showed me the watch. I put it on. I liked it. We adjusted the bracelet. And it came to time to pay. And so I pulled out my Barclay card, because at that time that was the only credit card there was in England. And as he was about to take it from my fingers, I said to him, um, if I pay cash, is there a discount? And he looked at me with a somewhere between withering contempt and um, gleeful grin and said, sir, I'm sorry, we don't discount Rolexes. Good lad. Unless, of course, you want a Daytona, in ah. which case we'll give you 20% off. Wow. They couldn't they... give them away. Very simply, why? Because the Daytona at that time was a manual wind watch. And yeah. Ro if Rolex was anything, it was an automatic watch with a date. Yeah. These were manual wind. They were a pain in the arse. You had to unscrew the thing every day. Yeah. You wanted to time anything, you had to unscrew the buttons. They couldn't give them away. The other problem was that everybody else was selling chronographs with value 72 movements in for half the price. Or if it was a, an Omega with a Lemania movement for about a third the price. Mm. So they couldn't let it give them away. And the other thing about them was that they weren't, <coughs> that with a Rolex, with a, with a day date, the case was made by Gen X, Rolex's case-making subsidiary. The movement was made at BN. The bracelet was made by their own, wholly owned Gay Frères operation. It was a Rolex. Yep. The only thing they bought in was the dial and the glass and the hands. Yep. The Valjoux Daytonas, the cases were made by Spiel, Spielmann. The dials were made outside. The movements were made by Valjoux. There were, really wasn't anything Rolex about it. It was it, it was it was in the catalogue because it was thought necessary to have a a chronograph. Yeah. But it wasn't. It, they didn't make a lot of them, and they weren't a huge seller. Which means that there's not many of them around, and so now you have a situation which is economics 101, where the demand is higher than the supply, yeah. and so the price keeps going up. Yeah, they're nice watches, but. Frankly, I haven't worn a manual wine Daytona in 10 years, and I have, I'm in no hurry to wear one. They're a pain in the ass. Yeah, it may not, but nevertheless, the stories that they tell, you know, the association. Yeah. And, and I, again, I read in, in your book that it, in some ways, one of the, the first sort of 
frenzies or craze about watches was about the cosmograph, the tonal cosmograph, but it was a very uh, international frenzy. The it, Italians were It was the Italians who them. were the first people yeah. in it. And it was, and, and again, they only started buying it when Rolex realized what a failure the watch was and stopped making it. Yeah. What people don't realize is that Rolex didn't make Daytonas for seven or eight years. Ah, I didn't know that. They quit making the manual yeah. one, and it took them, it, it took them years to sell the ones they had in stock. Yeah. Then, when when the craze had taken off, Rolex thought, oh, maybe it's time for us to do this again, and for us to cash in on it, yeah. rather than um, <laughs> just be spectators. And is it is it true? Do you think that a lot of that was down to the, you know, the public endorsement by uh, Paul Newman? I don't think, I don't think that had anything to do with it. I think what had a lot to do with it was the was the fact that this was a watch that everybody wants what you can't get. Yep. And you couldn't get the watch. Newman never endorsed the watch. I mean, he he the the name Paul Newman was used by Italians who because it was on the cover of a an Italian magazine where he yep. was doing an interview he he was wearing that watch yep and that's the Italian dealers began to call it Paul Newman and Italian dealers have a huge effect on the market they they were really the first into vintage relics vintage watches per se and they've always tried to uh, not to manipulate the market, but to... To, to, to remind the market, I guess. Yeah, to manage yeah. the market. Yep. And so, after the Paul Newman name took off, in the 80s, we started hearing people talk about the Explorer 1 as the Gregory Peck. All right. And people talk about the 5512 as the Steve McQueen. Yep. Uh, Neither of those names really took off. Certainly, yep. the Gregory Peck didn't, and the Steam McQueen only slightly, because McQueen's more really associated with the Monaco. Yep. The Italians led the market, and they've continued to do so. And I would say that they they still they they still really, to a very large extent, control the market in uh, in vintage relics. Yep. But it, uh, but it was the start of of, of, of something huge, the Daytona Cosmograph. And I mean, ultimately, we're talking about Paul Newman. Uh, his watch, apparently, is what was sold last year. Was it at Phillips or Christie's? I yes, can't remember. Phillips. It, it, Phillips yeah. in, uh, in New York. 17 million, was it? I think it was $15 million. 15 million. Yeah. For what probably cost a couple of hundred bucks, as you say, with a 20% discount back in the day. Yeah. And. Possibly being Paul Newman. Actually, the watch was given to him by his wife, so I was, I was thinking if, if probably if Paul Newman walked into a, a Rolex dealership, they would probably give him an even better discount, but uh, as his wife bought it, she probably didn't get such a great discount. But yeah. nevertheless, it was not an expensive watch, and he never thought of it as an expensive watch. He, it, it was one of a series of watches that he wore. Yep. Um, and it's it's a design. It's a what isn't well recognised is the Paul Newman dial was made by um, Singer, uh, a, a very famous Swiss dial maker, 
and they sold that dial design to other manufacturers. So you can buy watches from Croton, you can buy watches from Launching right. with a similar dial design. Yeah. And they're worth nothing because they don't have that coronet on the dial. Yeah. <laughs> that I've mistakenly been calling a crown, but uh, um, no, very interesting. So I mean, in the, the 60s, you know, other developments, 67 with the Sea Dweller, uh, going down to 610 metres with the helium escape valve. Uh, 2000 was when the movement, as you rightly say, the 4130 movement was put into the uh, uh, cosmograph, uh, the, the toner. Uh, and then other great technical developments, 2005, the cerachrome bezel, which is beautiful uh, uh, for sure. Uh, the, the parachrome hairspring. Does it have to be blue or is that marketing? No, um, the, the blue is from a heat treatment, but in fact, the the very first ones, to the best of my knowledge, weren't blue. Right. And they were fitted in the very first of the in-house Daytona movements. Um, but it was just, blue ha bluing of, a, of the steel in a watch, and of course the hairsprings are not steel, but bluing of steel in a watch was always taken as a sign of high quality. Yep. So blued screws, blued hands. Of course. This is done, and it's a very temperature sensitive thing. This cannot be done on mass manufacture. Yep. Um, but I think that the bluing on the uh, parachrome hairspring is a natural result of its heat treatment. Oh, right. Um, I've seen them being made. I've seen the, the hairspring being made, and the amount of the alloy is unique to Rolex, and the way that they're wound to see people sitting at a bench, just winding them around a little coil. Yep. Um, it, 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 it's wonderfully archaic. It, it really does look like the 19th century. Yes. Yep. And the. And, and yet we know what it produces at the end of the day. So we'll talk about all the proprietary. Uh, materials and so on that Rolex has that really makes them uh, unique um, and it's uh, you know rolling quickly forward 2007 we have the Yachtmaster 2 the deep sea in 2008 uh, 2012 the sky dweller and this last few years the the, the updating of uh, icons and the expansion of icons has been hugely uh, successful there's never been demand for Rolex like there is today and uh, this last few years what's been done the Air King, the Sea Dweller, Sky Dweller now available in a uh, steel, steel and gold. Uh, the Comfort Flex strap, which I'm uh, delighted to be yep. wearing in this, uh, in this great Daytona. Uh, Daytona 18 karat gold, uh, as we have it now. The GMT uh, Master 2 the on a Jubilee bracelet. I mean, so many wonderful things are, are happening, and, and there really is such a demand now for uh, everything Rolex. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting was the the watch you mentioned first. Again, is another one of their one of their few dismal failures. The Yachtmaster Two. Yep. Um, nevertheless, it introduced something that I think is really revolutionary for Rolex, which is the uh, adjustment of functions on a watch by the bezel. Right. And this has really come to fruition in the in the, the Sky, Sky Dweller, Dweller yep. which I think is it's rare. You know, my, my, my admiration for Rolex is, is well known, but I, I, I don't think anybody can call them an inexpensive watch. They are value for money, yep. but they ain't cheap. Yep. Yet, to me, 
one of the best bargains in watchmaking today is the steel and white gold sky dweller. Yep. I mean, you've got a annual calendar, twin time zone, waterproof watch. Yep. Um, I mean, what more do you want yep. in a watch? And it's what, 12 grand? Yes, it'll be 12 grand, given it 11, whatever it was, yeah. 11 and a half, yeah. I mean, to me, yeah. that's... Yeah, no, I agree with you, and it's, it is the ultimate complication with uh, yeah, the throw, I mean, and great fun, actually, yeah. setting everything with the, uh, the bezel and uh, the crown. Yeah. And being, a, uh, being an annual calendar, it, it's pretty much a set... I mean, it, it, it's the ultimate expression of what Hans Wolsdorf wanted, yep. a watch that you set it and forget it. Yeah. Literally, you, you have to touch the crown once a year. Right. Yes, of course. And that's it. Yep. And yep. that's that's what he wanted. He wanted a watch, literally, that would be perpetual, that would be accurate, that would be waterproof, and he's got all of that. Plus, it tells you the time in two different time zones. Yep. Um, Another one that I know that you know, and our listeners wouldn't be surprised to hear, we just can't get enough of. And um, again, I think a master stroke putting it into you know stealing gold from what was previously yeah. only an eighteen karat gold uh, option, but. Uh, um, you, you mentioned mar- marketing with the Rolex and the, the ambassadors that they choose. They always seem to you know, have such a, a great taste and criteria when it comes to choosing ambassadors. Well, I, I, again, this is to do with the long-term thinking of Rolex, is that they, they rarely choose people who are, who've just made it. They wait until people are at the top of their game and have been doing it for a bit yep. and then they pick them and then they stay with them yep. so you know they had people like you know people like Jack Nicholas and Jackie Stewart have yep. been Rolex ambassadors for f- 50 years yep. uh, Dame Kirita Kanawa been yep. a Rolex ambassador for 30 or 40 years they it, it's, it's not the, there are certain brands who pick ambassadors the way other people pick ties and you know there are some brands who I'm not going to mention but you know who who, I get emails from their PR people about a new ambassador every week Mm. probably might pick one or two a year maybe not even that many yeah and as you say very very selective and, and on the individual their accomplishment in yeah. life and uh, it's it's not about celebrity endorsement by any stretch of the imagination it's about acknowledging that somebody is uh, fit to be an ambassador of a of the great Rolex brand of course uh, so we've mentioned the foundation the the Rolex awards for enterprise which is a tremendous program uh, the mentor and pro- uh, protege arts initiative they do and a lot of support of arts and uh, and culture that again is very good for the brand and, and clearly a very good thing for uh, uh, for life in Switzerland and, uh, and beyond I think the mentoring program is, is really interesting because again they take people who are at the very peak of their careers you know they've, they've picked people like Scorsese and De Palma and Margaret Atwood as yep. mentors and they put somebody who's showing promise, but really not much more, and put them with somebody at the top of their game for a year and let them learn from a master. It's, it doesn't 
really reward Rolex in any great way. It's just, it's something really good to do. Yep. And it gives people, it, it's an investment in the future. Yes. It's an investment in the future of culture, it's an investment in the future of science. It, it, it's, a, it's a great idea and it's beautifully done and I, I consider it to be, uh, although it's very recent, to be one of the best things they do. Yes, no, I totally agree. And it's, it's like, as everything they do, it's, it is very Rolex. It's very uh, sympathetic to what the brand stands for mm -hmm. in terms of its ethics and positioning. And I think a lot of it really too just relates back to Hans Wolsdorf as well. Um, a real pioneer, um, someone with great drive and ambition and at the ult ultimately wonderful uh, uh, vision for the future. Yes, and I think something we have to remember about Hans is that, yeah, he had calluses on his finger and thumb from winding watches, but he was never a watchmaker. He, he never got involved with the movement manufacturer. Mm. It was always Aigler. Aigler yep. was a completely separate operation. It was owned by the Aigler Bora family. Yep. It, it, they came to a deal in the late 30s where Rolex agreed that they wouldn't buy movements from anybody except Aigler, and Aigler agreed they wouldn't sell movements to anybody except Rolex. And it was done on a handshake. There was no share relationships. You know, they didn't own each other's shares. It was a simple one-to-one -one relationship. But Hans stayed away from movements, all that technical stuff. The interesting thing is that I've had access to all of the documentation of the company, all the company reports and things of that nature. Um, and whenever, on any legal document, Hans doesn't describe himself as a watch manufacturer or a watchmaker or anything. He describes himself as a merchant, somebody mm. who buys and sells. And nowadays we would call him a marketing man. And I think that's what you have to realize about him, is that he was a marketing man. He understood what the public wanted, and he went out of his way to fulfill that was once. And that was his key thing. Yeah. I mean, the parallel I always draw is Steve Jobs, who, who I think was that too. He, he knew what the world, the world should have been carrying their music around in a, in a device to listen to before anybody technically had figured out how they could do that. He said that's how it should be. Interesting, yes, I, I think that's true, but then I have to reconsider my previous statement because Jobs famously said, I don't give people what they want, I tell them what they want. Right. And in many ways that can also be true of Hans Wollstone. Yeah, he was telling people they should be wearing yeah. wristwatches when people yeah. were saying they're for women. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So he, he saw, it's more like he saw a gap in the market and went for it, and then convinced people that they needed it. Yes. It wasn't that people were crying out for a waterproof wristwatch yep. or a watch that wound itself. Yep. It, it was that he, he thought that there was a market for it, and he went for it. We're very glad he did. 
because it, uh, it is our biggest business. It's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful brand, and a wonderful story that uh, that you uniquely tell, uh, James. I was delighted to hear from you earlier that um, you're you're going to do some some further writing. Going to be doing two volumes. One of them being up up to the uh, uh, the passing of uh, Hans Wilsdorf, and uh, then the second volume for the Rolex thereafter. Yes, the uh, <coughs> my new book. The classic Rolex, the Hans Wilsdorf, which volume one, the Hans Wilsdorf years, will be with my publishers in March of next year. So it should be out by the end, by probably this time next year. And uh, when it comes out, I look forward to coming here and doing a book signing. It will be a pleasure. And what I'd hope is I could get a discount if I pay cash. Uh, <coughs> as long as it's not a Daytona, sir. As long as you give me a discount. Okay. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's see, but I'll tell you, James, it's been a real pleasure. You're, a, I think, a unique expert uh, on, on Rolex and uh, wonderful to hear all this anecdote and, and uh, detail and, and history behind this uh, wonderful brand. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me, Brian. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, James, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts and all social media platforms. 